0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. I had a chance this last week to go with several of the staff to Dallas to a conference. Uh, It was put on by Right Now Media, which is the, the subscription that we have as a church where we are able to access all the videos from teachers like Chip Ingram and Matt Chandler. And a lot of you use those in your small groups. They have a great ministry and really grew in my appreciation for their heart in that ministry this week as I heard from them and heard from many of those people. We were able to sit under the teaching of Chip Ingram and Matt Chandler and some folks that I didn't know that really uh, impacted my heart personally, and so uh, just really, really grateful for that. Um, Being with all those great people, I'll apologize that you're left with me this morning. Sorry to hear about that, but uh, I'll do the best I can. But I'm grateful because I, I believe our passage this morning, thankfully, gives us a little clarity to what was such a strong rebuke from James last week. He'll make the point that the rich in this world, whether believers or unbelievers, we, we covered that last week, whether they trust in God or not, are often the ones who lose sight of the Lord's return. We can become so comfortable With what we have right here now that that we lose sight of things that are yet to come. In many ways, I believe this warning from James really was meant for us. For modern Christians who can find security in their comfort. Life is good as long as everything is in control and falling into place. And I don't know about you, but I often find my security in comfort. But if you look at Scripture, it consistently calls Christians to long for something more than this world could ever offer. And and multiple times it calls us to, to look expectantly for the Lord's return. In fact, it may surprise you to know that the promise of the Lord's return is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament alone. That's one in every 13 verses. So when I hear that, what it tells me is the promise of the Lord's return should be the primary motivation for the everyday Christian life. But for many Christians, including myself, it's something that we rarely give any time and attention towards. But we also know from what we know of our author in this letter, that that was not true for James. He had a whole different perspective on this issue. He was a man who lived in the same house where Jesus was raised. Think about that. He slept in the same bedroom where Jesus slept. He ate meals together as a family with Jesus. He was not some unfamiliar person. It was his brother. Which may explain why James was so reluctant to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah. It was just all too familiar to him. In fact, James did not believe in Jesus all the way up to the crucifixion. There was no message of truth. There was no miracle performed in the life and ministry of Jesus that changed James's mind. The only thing that changed James James's mind is when he met the risen Lord face to face. In fact, you don't need to turn there. I just want you to listen to this account as it explains what took place for I deliver to you as I first of in first importance. This is in 1 Corinthians 15 chapter 3 if you want to write, or chapter 15 verse 3 if you want to write it down. Paul speaking says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to, to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. Most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And then to the other apostles. James believed because he saw the resurrected Christ face to face. And not only that, we also know that James was there at the ascension of Christ. And so he heard the promise of the angels when they said, He will return in the very same way that you have seen him go. And I believe, I firmly believe that that promise was the primary motivation of the life and ministry of James from that moment on. But for many people, I believe like the exiles that James is writing to, maybe like you and I, the excitement about Jesus has kind of faded with time. In its place was the harsh reality of life in a sin-cursed world. Keep in mind, these are exiles who've been run out of town because of their faith in Christ. And so now they're just trying to figure out how to manage life without finding trouble, without making a scene. And in that regard, maybe they're not a whole lot different than us. Managing life without much attention to the promise of the Lord's return. But James, as we know, views life from a completely different point of view. In fact, I'm convinced that he cannot lose sight of seeing the resurrected Christ. And I believe that that is the motivation of his life and ministry. And I believe in many ways it's the motivation of this letter. And in many ways it is the primary point of this passage. Because he wants you and I to share that perspective, and to see all of life through that lens. James is calling us to cultivate an expectant heart. He wants us to live with the end in mind. And I I don't know about you, but I hear that, and it resonates with me, and not because it happens consistently, but more so because it doesn't. And I want it to. I want to see all of life through the lens of Christ's return. And so let's just pray that the Lord might use our passage this morning to stir that within us. Let's pray together. Lord, maybe the first thing, it might be good just to confess that we are so easily distracted by the things of this world that we lose sight of the promise of your return. We get so caught up in so many details of day-to-day life that we lose sight of the promise of your return. And Lord, help us just gain a new perspective this morning, maybe just something, small thing, (laughs) that will just shift the trajectory of how we live to be more faithful to what you've called us to in these last days this last chance for people to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Lord, we want to be a people who represent your truth in the world around us, to live distinctly different because we live with the end in mind. And so, God, cultivate within us this morning an expectant heart for the promise of your return. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, if you would turn to James chapter 5 and begin reading with me in uh, verse 7, where we left off last. James chapter 5, verse 7. After that strong rebuke from James in those first six verses, he then says in verse 7 Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, the harvest. Being patient about it until it gets to, till it gets the early and, and the late rains. You too. Be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James calls us to patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. And in this context, he, he's telling us to, to cultivate a hopeful expectation. And we know that because of the example he gives us. The example of the farmer who waits expectantly for the harvest, that point in time where all that diligent labor finally pays off, knowing that that the final outcome is ultimately outside of his control. Why? Because the farmer depends on rain. Right, Bob? (laughs) And and as he would tell you, not just any rain. It's the right rain at the right time. Because here in West Texas, we know there have been years of drought where in the early season, we didn't have rain. And and those farmers planted that seed, but that seed could not germinate because there just wasn't enough moisture in the ground, and so no crop could be produced. And then there are other years, like this year perhaps, where they had a great harvest, and then they got a lot of rain at exactly the wrong time. So James is looking at that, and he's talking about the the right rain at the right time, and he's saying that, that farmers begin every season with a hopeful expectation of an abundant harvest, waiting expectantly for that right rain at the right time, because when the timing is right, they know that the harvest will be plentiful. James takes that principle and he applies it to the Lord's return. Because from a biblical perspective, those early reigns have already come. Because when Jesus came, he came to plant that seed of truth into the hearts of men. So that when we look upon him, we see the promise of salvation fulfilled at the cross. And when that seed of truth is implanted in our heart and embraced by faith, it begins to grow. And as it grows, it will produce a harvest, a a fruit in the lives of those who follow him and trust him. And there will be a day. There will be a day when the Lord returns. And the harvest will be complete. There's a great passage in Hosea chapter six, verse three. Just write that down, hosea six three because it's a beautiful passage that speaks of this day, and it says this: "Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, as certain as the sun came up this morning is as certain as the Lord will return, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain. Watering the earth. There will be a day. When the Lord will. Return to earth. And that promise of his reward will be made complete. For those who have put their trust in him. That promise. Of eternal life. James says look expectantly for that day. Be diligent in your labor. Faithful in your obedience because there is a great reward the promise of eternal life live each day with that end in mind He says in verse 8 be patient for that day for the, for the day is near <laughs> that's what it means when it says the day is at hand the day is near now if you're like me you read that and think well James you wrote that 2000 years ago what exactly did you mean by near and even in the early church, they began to question about this promise that was near. If you want to, you can look at 2 Peter chapter 3, just a few pages over from where you are in James. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter addresses this issue going on in the early church as people were beginning to question the promise. You said it was coming, well then where is it? Look in verse 3. Now, this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own and saying, where's the promise of his return? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues as it has been. From the beginning of creation, nothing's changed. And then look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. What this tells me is that God does not wear a watch. Why? He's not worried about time. He's concerned about timing. Timing. And his timing is perfect. We can't influence the return of Christ any more than a farmer can influence the coming of the rain. But one thing we do know is that each day we live, we are one day closer to the Lord's return because the time has been set. And its timing will be perfect. And the Lord knows that day. We can't determine when it happens, but we are responsible for what He finds when He does arrive. That's why James tells us to strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. When I read that strengthen your heart, it's this idea of a a confident resolve. It's a committed determination. It's what I would say, uh, putting iron in your soul. OK, it's this idea of a fierce determination, a confident resolve to resist temptation, to battle against sin, to refuse to compromise. It's, a, it's an active approach, not a, not a passive resistance. This, in my mind, is that brave heart, run to the battle lines, boldness kind of faith. James is it addressing an audience much like many in our world today that are way too comfortable with life this side of heaven. They're surrounded by compromise. And many of them have fallen victim to its influence. James is telling them, strengthen your resolve, affirm your commitment, believe in something greater than anything this life has to offer. This side of heaven. He he wants us to actively pursue godliness. And not just as individuals. This is not an independent pursuit. This is a collective resolve. And we know that's true from what he says next in verse 9. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The word for complaint here is to grumble. It's someone who causes fr- frustration, and in particular, it's someone who's, who adds to an already difficult situation. picture that I had in mind, if you've ever done this before, how many of you all have ever done a, a high ropes course? Okay, so one of the activities in a high ropes course is a rope bridge, and I'm not talking about with boards and a path. I'm talking about a, a single rope that you walk on and then two ropes up high that you balance with. Okay, high, okay, get this, high above the trees, right? And if you've ever done this before, you know that you make it about halfway and the rope starts doing this. I mean, you cannot make it stop no matter how hard you try. And I want you to imagine being in that place on that ropes course, hearing somebody back at the platform saying, why are you shaking so much? Stop shaking and be easier. How come you're going so slow? Hurry up, you're taking too long. Okay, that's not a good friend. Okay, that's somebody who's making an already difficult situation that much more difficult. And James is saying, don't be that person. It's so much better when you have somebody on the other side going, man, you got this. You got this. It's all right. Hang in there. You can do it. Press on. And James is saying, that's the person you need to be. Looking to encourage, not to condemn. Because here's the reality, guys, and we all know this to be true. Living faithfully when surrounded by compromise is not easy for anyone. And it's so much better when you have someone with you who's willing to strengthen their resolve and yours along with them. We've all been in this place. Zach, is it not true? That you are surrounded by a world of compromise at Friendship High School. And is it not true that it is so much better when you have a buddy like the one sitting right next to you who is willing to stand strong for your faith in the midst of that compromise? And what's true for them is true for everyone in this room. And that's what James is calling us to. Here's the reality. When the Lord returns, He's not going to be impressed with our polished lives if we have not been faithful to encourage those around us. God will judge our compassion for people right alongside our devotion to Christ. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are interdependent. The absence of one betrays the other. So encourage each other. Strengthen your resolve and stand together. Look at how he continues in verse 10. As an example, brethren, to suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord was full of compassion and is merciful. James turns to the prophets as an example, and there are many, but I want us to focus on one this morning. I want us to look at the the life of Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah had a hard road. He was so faithful to God, but God had called him to to speak to a stiff-necked people, a people who would not listen to what he had to say. Job was sent to rescue those who were drowning, and those who were drowning refused to the help that he was offering. They would actually ask Jeremiah, give us a word from the Lord, Jeremiah. We know you're a prophet. We want a word from the Lord. So he would. He would give them a word for the Lord. But when it wasn't something that they wanted to hear, they punished him. They beat him. They threw him in jail. There's actually a time where they put him into a cistern, which is a deep hole, and in the bottom it was filled with mud, and they left him there to die. Thankfully, he was rescued, but the point is prophets were not in it for popularity because the truth they spoke was often rejected by the people it was intended for. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. He says, rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets were faithful even when truth wasn't popular. Now, We've probably all experienced that to some degree, and I think some of those who experience it most are those who've been sent out from this church to be missionaries in other parts of the world. They are often in hostile environments where they are preaching the message of Christ. Just this last week, I received a letter from one of those missionaries, Gary Morris, and he describes an experience he had in recent weeks that lines up with what I just said. I want you to listen to what he says. There's also recently some of the students in the synagogues that attended the Tanakh classes, like a Bible study I go to, wanted me to comment on some of the things I'd brought up that the rabbi was not addressing. We met at a coffee shop, and one of the persons says, Well, this looks like Jesus. I said, Yes, it does. That's why the rabbi won't comment about it. They said, but this is Christian. And I said, yes, it is, but it's in the Hebrew scripture. If Christians believe the Hebrew prophets, it doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means they believe the scriptures more than our own people do. They went to the head rabbi to see if he could answer the questions concerning the verses. And Monday, this past week, the rabbi pulled me out of class and confronted me in front of everyone. It wasn't fun. Was it stressful? Yes. But it happened to our Savior, and He warned us. He warned us. We read it. That rejection would happen to us. If we're going to combat for His truth, we will hurt sometimes emotionally, but it will be well with our soul. (laughs) Hopeful expectation in the Lord's return. Includes patient endurance in a sin-cursed world. Like Gary said, when we stand for truth, we will be hurt. But it is well with our soul. We must have the patience of the prophets. <laughs> along with the faithfulness of Job. Now, Job, if you know his story, is a curious example. Because he wasn't always patient, right? Right? <laughs> We know that there were times where he would say, I wish I'd never been born. All this is happening to me. This is not fair. I wish I'd never been born. He he turned to his friends, quotation, who tried to speak into his life and not always encouraging words, mostly condemning. And he said to them, you're worthless comforters. (laughs) True, but harsh. He also was known to say that what God was doing just wasn't fair, seemed unjust, and he would complain about that fact. But here's why I believe Job is an example that we are called to follow first. He gives us, to be, he gives us permission to be honest in our pain. I mean, think about it. James lost his family. He lost his business. He lost his health. And sure, he complained about what seemed unjust, about what was going on around him, but he never, don't lose this, he never, ever abandoned his faith in God. In fact, he went as far as to say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He brought his complaint before the Lord, but only because he knew the Lord was his only hope. He wanted to be vindicated in the face of the criticism. But whether that happened or not, he knew that God would ultimately have the last word. We know that's true because of what is said in Job 19, verse 25. Listen to this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and no other. How my heart yearns within me. Do you hear the hopeful expectation of Job even in the midst of his pain? Even in the midst of what seems unjust and unfair? Even in the midst of the criticism? Because he knows God will have the last word. And when he does, it will all be made right. (laughs) You see, James doesn't want us to miss out on Job's example of not just hopeful expectation, but we know the end of the story, don't we? We know that Job finds God returning what he had lost, not in part, but actually in full, in many ways more than what he had before in terms of his Riches. It says that what Job experienced as the outcome is the evidence of God's mercy and compassion. Now, now, as I thought about this, this is something that's just recently come to my mind. Uh, You might just ponder on it. I'm not so sure about it, but I'm just wondering. As we look at the example of Job and we see how his riches were restored to him and how God vindicated him and how all things were in many cases made right, Minus the absence of his family, who he would only see in eternity. But I just wonder, if God restored all those things for everyone to see, including you and I, to give us a glimpse of what will happen when we see our Savior face to face, and everything will be made right in ways that far beyond, goes far beyond anything we could ask or imagine. I just wonder... If the example we see in Job helps us understand the fulfillment of the promise that applies to all of us, to such a degree that the message that we hear is this. Whatever you might be experiencing in this moment, it is not the end of the story. If it's good, fantastic, but listen to me, there's something that's a whole lot better. If it's hard, then listen to me. It will be redeemed. Whatever you're going through, it is not the end of your story. And I'm convinced that there will be a point in time when all of us do confess what Job ultimately did at the end of that story when he says in chapter chapter 42, verse 1, listen to these words. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And Job says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. God, you revealed things too wonderful for me to know. And here's what I believe God would say to Job in that moment. And you ain't seen nothing yet. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any other oath, but let your yes be a yes, your no be a no, that you may not fall under judgment. Now, when you first read this verse, you kind of wonder, as I did, okay, how does this fit into what James has been saying about the return of Christ? And as we think through that, I want you to keep in mind that he's teaching us To live expectantly for the Lord's return. He wants us to to live each day with that end in mind. He tells us to be patient. He wants us to be faithful. And now I believe here he's instructing us to be truthful. To swear by heaven. To to take an oath in God's name is, is using God's name to give credibility to your words. But James is saying... How you live is what gives credibility to what you say. Because very often we will use an oath to cover a history of deception. It's Like someone who begins their sentence, you know, I'll I'll be honest with you. (laughs) I don't want to stop them right there and say, wait, wait, wait. So you mean you haven't been honest with me up to this point? What do you mean by that? See, when we're surrounded by compromise, we all face the temptation of lowering the standard of integrity by which we live. It reminds me of a cartoon that was in the New Yorker. pictured two clean-shaven, middle-aged men that were sitting next to each other in a jail cell. One of them turns to the other and says, You know, all along I thought our level of corruption fell within community standards. We see that a lot happening in the church today. Forget what's happening in the world around us. We see a lot of that happening in the church today. More and more church leaders are allowing the culture to inform Scripture instead of allowing Scripture to inform culture. We're adjusting our doctrine to meet community standards. Altering our lifestyles to meet cultural norms. I mean, what's the phrase? Everyone's doing it? Precisely, which is exactly why you shouldn't. When it comes to speaking the truth, it's really not a matter of my opinion against your opinion. What it all boils down to is his word against ours. As a Christian, we are called to represent the truth of God. Lowering our standard of integrity ultimately dilutes the message of Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian, how we live and what we say says something about whom we serve. Truth is important when it comes to the message of Christ. You see, trafficking in untruth makes real truth real hard to see. And this is not just isolated to blatant lies, okay? Let's be honest with each other here about what this entails because it's not just blatant lies, it's little white lies. It's embellishing the truth. It has everything to do with keeping your promise in your marriage. It has everything to do with your integrity in the workplace. It has everything to do with faithfulness in your family. If you want to know how important truth is in the eyes of God, look no further than the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Right, we looked at that in the spring when we began our journey through Acts. Okay, we remember that they set an example that we all can't get out of our minds because here's what I'm convinced. They didn't do anything that was not culturally uh, uh, acceptable in the world in which they lived. Ananias and Sapphira didn't do anything that most everyone wasn't already doing. They sold some land. They gave some of the profit to the church, and they kept some of the profit for themselves. They didn't misrepresent what they did to the apostles. Because the Scripture says that they lied to the Spirit of God. They lied to God, not to man. Everything they owned was a gift from God, but they thought that what they were doing was doing God a favor by giving them a part of what they owned. What they gave to the apostles, and here's the key, what they gave to the apostles was presented as a sacrificial gift with no strings attached, which was the example of Barnabas that preceded them. But their deception was not in what they said. It's in what they didn't say. Because they gave the appearance of sacrificial obedience while hiding the heart of compromise. They lowered their standard of integrity to meet cultural norms. Christian integrity is increasingly important even more as the day draws near. We cannot adjust our doctrine to meet community standards. We can't alter our lifestyle to adjust to cultural norms. Uh, Upholding truth is at the core of what God has called us to. In fact, if you want to, turn to John chapter 17. And I think this is a significant example because, as you all know, this is the prayer of Jesus just moments before going to the cross. So what we know in this what's known as the high priestly prayer. But what we know in this prayer from Jesus is if there's anything that's important on his heart, it's going to come out in this prayer, right? So I want you to listen to what he says, beginning in verse 17 of John chapter 17. Praying to God, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you gave them you sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify them myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. See, the, the testimony of every Christian is that we have been transformed by the truth of God's word. It shapes us to become everything that he created us to be. That's what it means to be sanctified by the truth. It's understanding everything that God has ultimately created us to be. And those who've been transformed by truth have been called to live by truth. Faithful to God, honest before men. Now, as we kind of take all this in and consider what this looks like in our life today, I want to offer a couple of suggestions because I think what James is saying is pretty clear, right? He says, be patient. Calls us to be faithful. Be truthful with hopeful anticipation of the Lord's return. We should live each day with the end in mind. And let me tell you here, not with a heart that is fearful, (laughs) not with a heart that is ashamed, Not with a heart that is embarrassed. I was reminded this week by Matt Chandler when he said this. God does not love some future version of you. He loves you. Right where you are, warts and all. Why? Because he sees the end. And he knows that you will one day become everything he created you to be. He loves who you are. And He wants you, even now, to be sanctified in His truth, to become everything that He's created you to be. No one here is a finished product. Everyone here, from young to old, is a work in progress. And He wants us to become everything that He's created us to be. So let me encourage you. To be patient with where you are in this moment. Be patient with yourself. And be patient with those around you. Give grace to yourself. And give grace to those around you. Wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing in this moment, you need to know it's not the end of the story. If you're in a good place, then praise the Lord. But be reminded God has something greater. If you're in a hard place, then let's stand together because you will be redeemed. Knowing that's true, here's how I want you to apply this today. I want to encourage you to be faithful to where God has you in this moment. Do the right thing at the right time. Say the right word at the right moment. Be patient, be truthful, be faithful right where you are. Not where you think you should be. <laughs> Not where you want to be. Not where other people tell you you ought to be. Where you are in this moment. Let God take care of making everything right In the future, you take care of being faithful in the moment. Do the right thing. Say the right word. Be patient. Be faithful. Be truthful. Because we all know that there is a day coming soon when everything will be made right. And that's the day we live for. So here's what we're going to do to close this morning. I've asked Brian to come and sing a song that we're familiar with, a little different take on it. But as he sings this song, and as you hear these words, let me encourage you to make this your prayer. Okay, look at me. Not them, look at me. It is so easy to get distracted by the world around us. That we lose sight of the promise of the Lord's return. And like we see in the life of James, it should be equally true for us. It should be the primary motivation of our life and ministry from this moment on. So make these words a prayer and rejoice in this promise. Thanks, guys. All of creation.
1: All of the earth, make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Come back the Savior, wake up the Savior, let every nation shout of your is our prayer today, that you would come quickly. And God, that in the meantime, you'd give us the grace to live faithfully live truthfully in a world of compromise and all that's going around us. Let us be the people that you've called us and sent us to be. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, family, have a great day.